let's conclude uh, the look at the negative references to our behavior toward one another, and then we'll shift towards the positive instructions uh, as we study through relating to one another in the language of the Bible, which is all of the action verbs that are done to, for, or with one another. Uh, We began with the negative instructions, most of them anyway, and we have just a few of those left, and then we'll move to the positive instruction. So let's look at Colossians chapter 3. We've touched on most of these New Testament books. Most of them included at least one reference to behavior that should be avoided. In Colossians chapter 3, since we're raised with Christ, we, we shun the old way of living. We put on the new man. And in that instruction, we see... In verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, building on that language of putting off the old, putting on the new, we put to death what is earthly, verse 5, we put away In verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And now we're putting away lying to one another. And that comes with this explanation. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. In other words, it doesn't fit with who you say you are. It doesn't fit with seeking things that are above, verse 1. It doesn't fit with what we know of Christ, verse 10. So we've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So knowledge isn't just data. It's not just information that we know. This is a transformational knowledge. This knowledge is helping us understand what the new self is. The more I know of Christ, the more I know what I should be. I know what the new self is. And that does not include lying to one another. Because we know, as Jesus came, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is Christ, uh, our creator. That knowledge is how we know what the new self is. So put on truth, put on Christ, and do not lie to one another. Uh, in Ephesians, Paul even says, uses the idea that these things ought not to be. Like, that doesn't fit with what a Christian is. So, be truthful. Um, the question then becomes, why aren't we truthful? Why, why aren't we truthful? What, what, is the, what is the draw for us to be untruthful, to go back to the old practices. Can you think of an explanation for why we would be tempted to be untruthful? We're told not to be ignorant of the devil's devices, so there's probably some wisdom in thinking through, what is the lie that I might believe regarding the truth? 
Rory, what you, can you help us? Protecting reputation. Yeah, protecting your reputation. It probably is a pretty good umbrella that would cover a lot of how we might try to reference why we might lie. Um, protecting might be more the defensive. There might be an offensive side to lying, you know, to get ahead, to get something for ourselves. But um, I think more often than not, we would be tempted to fudge on the truth, we call it, lie, uh, in order to maintain an image. We don't want people to think we're flawed. And so rather than acknowledging, I forgot to do that or we would just say that we did. And yet that's what Paul is telling the church at Colossae. Uh, that, that's the old way of living. Uh, you don't have an image to protect. Uh, your image was, was lost. Your image was a, a ruined sinner. And now stamped on you is the image of Christ. And that's what God is trying to conform us to more and more. So be consumed with that. And, and if you've failed or if you've lied, then be done with that. Do not treat each other uh, in such a way that lying is allowed in those relationships. Uh, build them on truth. Uh, so there's a lot there in Colossians 3, a lot of foundation uh, rooted, rooting us in Christ. But that is the foundation which Paul is building on to give us a simple instruction, don't lie to one another. Uh, And while that sounds simple, okay, don't go out and tell lies this week, that's not fully his point because he's reminding us we're to be putting on the new self, which is renewed in this knowledge of the image of our creator. So Paul is really saying, continue to seek Christ because the more you're doing that, the the more the lying will fall away. Uh, That's the principle in Romans uh, 13, 14, or 14, 13, one of those, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. But the order is probably significant there. Put on Christ, be, be seeking him, Colossians 3, and the flesh won't have much room because you're filling up, you're consumed with the pursuit of Christ. All right, Colossians 3, and now let's look at Titus 3 few letters over. Titus 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Similar to Colossians, we have an old way of living and the new way of living. Here in the letter to Titus, 
there's this emphasis on that dramatic transformation brought about by our God and Savior who appeared. So verse 5 is that big change. He saved us, not by our works of righteousness, but by his own mercy, work of the Holy Spirit. He's laying out some doctrinal phrases there to help us understand what has happened to us. But what has happened is we're not in verse 3 anymore. We don't live that way. Uh, We're not foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passion, wasting our days in envy and malice, hated by others and hating one another. You just watch what's going on in our culture and and you see while not every unbeliever that you work with or in your neighborhood is immediately characterized by hating and being hated, the general feel of evil in our culture is this spirit of antagonism. There used to be more of a moral majority, uh, to borrow the 70s language, um, a Judeo-Christian ethic that was respected, even maybe then tolerated, but now it's, it's becoming frustrated to, frustrating to the culture. Um, and we're starting to see how, how a, a hatred for what is true and right really is underlying all of humanity. And Jesus warned us about this. He said, listen, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you if you follow me. So don't be surprised by that. Um, so when we look at verse 3, we realize, okay, once again, the New Testament is emphasizing that that is the old way of living. Hate, hate is an indication of a heart of unbelief, a heart untouched by love, by transforming love. Remember, we love God because he first loved us, and the commands to love others are rooted in because God has loved us. That God's love is transformational. We've been, we've been infused with, swallowed up by this divine love, so we're now capable of loving. We're capable of loving and being loved by God's people because of the transition in verses 4 and 5. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared and he saved us. So now... The new commandment of John 13 reminds us, you love one another because that's a distinguishing mark. Unbelief characterized by hate. You spend the days being hated by others and hating one another, but everything's different now. And so we love one another. And again, when we hear hate, or hating one another, we, we probably don't think of ourselves as haters of others. And yet, coming to the scripture and knowing Colossians 3 and now Titus 3 are both contrasting our life prior to Christ and our life after Christ, uh, there's no room for hatred now. Uh, somehow we have to figure out how to love our enemies, how to love those who persecute or Maybe in our culture, we would just say antagonize or hate what we believe, hate the God that we love. Uh, We have to figure out how to see through gender dysphoria and uh, 
anti-Christian sentiments and, and see people who have not been transformed by the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior yet. We have to recognize that they are souls that are taken captive at the will of the devil, 2 Timothy 2 tells us. So somehow we have to eliminate that spirit of hatred, that, that rejection, that judgment that flows out of us that's really not ours to dispense. Um, any, any of the judgment and any of the wrath and any righteous hatred as it might show up in the Psalms um, needs to flow out of God's perfect character. Uh, hate is not something we should be good at. And so hear that admonition. Uh, hating one another is a characteristic, a mark of unbelievers, whereas believers have a uniquely different characteristic, and that is to love one another. So uh, pray that prayer of the psalmist, that God would search you and know you and and see if there is that element of hate uh, in you, because it has to go. Uh, In our journey of sanctification, we have to be putting off the hate and putting on love. All right, two last negatives, both in the book of James. Yeah, there's something that's not that's not necessarily a negative. It's uh, uh, the idea of being enslaved to various lusts and pleasure. And uh, that's part of the transformation where we're uh, I mean, that's kind of... Uh, underlying root cause of so much discontent. And I can't really figure out how to get all this into the hatred part of the teaching. But I see that as a very powerful force of the enemy. I mean, I hear about TikTok and all these fads that go across TikTok, TikTok and all the people get sucked into that behavior. So what are they enslaved to that they get you know, self-recognition uh, from others. I'm sorry, it's kind of off, you know, the, the topic, but I just see this enslavement, enslavement to our own pleasures. And we may not see that enslavement and recognize right. that what it is. And maybe just at least need to be warned that we don't need to be like the Israelites of old, looking back at times of slavery and thinking it was times of success or some kind of freedom. Uh, yeah, the transformation there in Titus 3 is, is a significant one in its description. James 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? It's an interesting explanation of an admonition. (laughs) Uh, Do not speak evil against one another. And, And we see it, he's addressing this to brothers. 
So this is for this room. It's not for uh, some unbeliever somewhere on a talk show or podcast just spewing evil about others. This is for us to hear, not to speak evil against one another, brothers. That's what you are. What thoughts do you have on, on this explanation? The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there's only one judge. It's not you. What, what, what do we do with that? What, any thoughts come to mind? Speaking more or less, kind of like just kind of focus on yourself and your faith and how you can grow instead of, you know, like I always say, who, who am I to judge? The ultimate judge. Obviously, it's the man upstairs. And, uh, so we definitely have that. It's You're not the judge, the final evaluator. What, what about the, how am I guilty of judging and speaking against the law? I speak evil against a, a brother. Any ideas of what, how to link that? Because like, I don't feel like I'm doing that, but the text clearly says if you speak evil against your brother, and it kind of links that with judging, so some kind of my evaluation, and I'll spew out you know, the evil speaking. What do you think? Is it tied to the actual legal system if you're not part of made by the law. Tied to a legal system? The actual legal system where you are adjudicating right and wrong, penalty, convictions. There's probably application there for sure. Uh, what else? Yeah, David? I, I think it could have some link to your applying the law, I believe you're saying that there is, my actions are judged a certain way, but others' actions are, are judged more harshly, perhaps. Yeah, it could be kind of an abuse of our understanding of the law, that standard of righteousness. I apply it strictly to others, and yet somehow I excuse myself and don't apply it the same way. What else? Some of, the, some of the, a lot of the struggle in New Testament interpretation is understanding what use of the law is being used here. Uh, Alan, another thought? Yeah, just looking, uh, like going all the way back to Leviticus, and then Jesus really states it. Uh, Leviticus nineteen eighteen says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sin, sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So applying that as law, you're not loving your brother as yourself. Yeah, I think in, in this passage, it is helpful to think of, of broad summaries of the law. Um, if we get too, too into the weeds of the law being Old Testament Mosaic law, it's like, well, how am I speaking against the law that tells us, you know, to... It's okay to pull the ox out of the ditch on a Sabbath if it, you know. I, I'm not addressing that. What, what is he talking about? Well, I think, I think especially when we're remembering the, the law that Jesus gives is 
here's a new commandment, a new law, and it's to love one another. If you speak evil against your brother and lump that with judging your brother, you're speaking against or you're putting yourself above judging the law. You're saying, well, the law says to love my brother, but I just think he's, and here comes the judgment and the speaking evil. And while you're speaking evil against your brother, you're actually dismissing the law. You know what it is, but you're, you're sitting as judge over it. You're saying that doesn't apply to me. I have my reasons for why I'm going to speak evil against this person or to this person. And it's a, it's a rejection of that law. You're sitting in judgment of the law itself. Uh, so now you're speaking evil against the law. It's not true. I'm not going to listen to it. And you're judging it. I'm above the law, all because you're letting the evil uh, come out. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law. So by saying, well, I know God said I'm supposed to love my brother, not speak evil against him. However, I'm, I'm, I know I'm right. And, he's, and when you judge the law, you're not doing it. You're not obeying it. You've put yourself above it. Uh, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then verse 12 kind of shoots it all down. But there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. That, that's that's the, the perfection of this one judge. Those are the kind of judgments he can pass, and they're not disputed because he's the one perfect judge. But who are you? to judge in that way, to put yourself above the law and to judge your neighbor, to judge your in-laws, to judge your kids, to judge your spouse, to judge your boss. Zachary threw out that question, who am I to judge? And and it has a number of answers. One of them is you're a spirit-filled believer who should rightly discern and pass righteous judgments when it comes to discerning good and evil. Um, But when it comes to putting yourself above the law and making it seem like you know better, and I know that's what God said, but no, that's that's hearing the same lies from the Garden of Eden when the devil said, did God really say? And they kind of thought about it, and they, yeah, he kind of did, but, well, has God said, love one another? Well, then you don't get to set that aside or put yourself above that and have some reason as to why you can speak evil against one another. So this, again, while the, while the instruction comes pretty starkly, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And that would be enough. The Holy Spirit can use that, and we could think on that and realize, yeah, I probably do that, and I, I need to put that away and put on love. But the explanation probably really helps give us some understanding here on how this temptation unfolds. It's not just that I'm saying something negative or unhelpful, tearing somebody down. It's that I've ignored God's instruction, and I've said I'm I'm better than that. I can make my own decisions about when to speak and how to speak. Um, And that question should ring in our ears. Who are you to do that, to set aside the law and to become the judge? Um, So don't do it. Do not speak evil against your brothers. And perhaps, as is often the case with present tense 
imperatives um, with a negative in the Greek language, perhaps it's best interpreted, stop judging or stop speaking evil against one another, brothers. Um, It's an ongoing action that needs to stop. And he's given us the full explanation so we know how we got into that situation where we were speaking evil against Christian brothers. Um, It's because we thought we were the final authority and we're just not. So the potential example would be on baptism. Some people with a clear conscience would baptize infants from their understanding of uh, of the scriptures. And somebody else would only advocate for uh, believers baptism. And and so these two different viewpoints, some people would come and say, well, we'll recognize our difference and accept each other as brothers versus saying, well, if you don't change, So just looking for practical examples of when this might happen, and and John references Christian brothers, we know they are, we're confident of that, who who may have doctrinal differences. They may choose to uh, wrestle with the scriptures regarding Old Testament circumcision, and as they come to the New Testament, they think they should baptize infants as a sign of God's covenant. So they baptize infants, um, and we look at Scripture and we say, no, we, we kind of see the discontinuity between Old Testament covenant and new, and so we don't feel we need to circumcise. We think there's a pretty good break in that symbolism, and now we think we should baptize those who are new creatures in Christ and identify with Him by faith. So we baptize believers, not infants who are not believers, we should be careful in, in going at that debate and, and strongly arguing from Scripture and trying to make our case that we're not speaking evil of the brothers. Um, and this could be in our day and age in, in podcasts and tweets, and if you follow any, anything Christian in that kind of sphere, you'll often hear some pretty harsh criticisms or... Uh, heavy labels tossed around pretty easily of heresy or error. Um, and, and there's probably a warning to make sure that we're not violating the law and standing in judgment of the law because we think we're right. Uh, and we may be on any given issue, um, but it's still not a warrant for speaking evil against others. Um, so wrestle with that and, and find the explanation uh, given by James to be helpful in understanding the path of temptation before we even speak evil. It's likely because we're thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. All right. Last one in James chapter 5. Beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. All right, again, 
The admonition seems simple. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. And yet it comes to us in the context of the second coming. So what do we do with not grumbling against each other in a paragraph about Christ coming back? To grumble means kind of exactly what you would think. That murmuring, ah, just a interior turmoil kind of coming out and, you know, sounds like you're talking to yourself and you kind of are, but it's, it's all the reasons for why this is no good and blah, blah, blah. Grumbling. Why in the context of be patient, the coming of the Lord is at hand, the judge is at the door. Any thoughts? I don't think it's unlike James chapter 4. The argument is somewhat similar. There's a behavior right now that probably would not be excused if we had our focus in the right place. If we had the right understanding of what God is doing in our lives now and where that fits on his timeline, it would help us to curb some of the negative behavior that's being restricted here. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. You as brothers and sisters in Christ are supposed to be helping each other down this pilgrim path that may very quickly be coming to an end. Why are you frustrated at temporal bothers that will fall away in eternity And that should fall away now because we're focused on the kingdom. And yet those things are consuming us so that we're we're talking to ourselves about them and murmuring and grumbling rather than thinking the time is short and Christ could be coming. Or my time may be short and I may be going. But one way or the other, there are more important things than whatever you think is so important that it should consume your time and your focus about somebody else's imperfections. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. It would almost imply don't hold a grudge. Don't don't keep focusing on little things that God has already promised us in Philippians 1.6. He's going to eradicate. He's going to perfect those people. He doesn't need your help. So quit worrying about those things and holding them against somebody and instead... Remember this, Christ is coming back. There is work to be done. And so this idea of not grumbling against one another, that impatience, which is kind of the introduction, be patient, brothers, in waiting for the coming of the Lord. But that patience in waiting for the Lord seems to be a patience that should affect how we treat each other. So, Impatience produces grumbling. Forgetfulness produces grumbling. We think the biggest thing on our plate right now is that person's problems, and the biggest thing on our plate should be Christ is coming back. And while I'm supposed to be ready and watching for him, I'm far more concerned about somebody else's issues. Forgetfulness of the coming. And then the the judgmental attitude. 
Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. It doesn't feel parallel, but I think it helps us interpret the grumbling. We could rightly think, don't be, don't be in frustration judging the brothers all the time, knowing that you don't want to be judged that way. Don't grumble against the brothers so that nobody will grumble about your failures and your imperfections. Do you really want the judge who is standing at the door to latch on to all your imperfections and not let them go and make sure you know about them? That doesn't sound like heaven. So, if hell is the presence of God's wrath and the constant reminder of falling short of the glory of God, we have to ask ourselves as spouses and parents, do we give our kids more of a taste of heaven than a taste of hell? Do they understand forgiveness and mercy? Or do we let them know, you always do this? I told you this yesterday and the day before, and I'm telling you again, you never seem to listen. Those kind of things are not the characteristic that marks believers. Do not grudge and grumble and hold on to offenses of others. It's, it's hellish, we learned in James chapter 3, to have a tongue that constantly curses and doesn't seem to have room for blessing. So this is significant for us as believers because we think, well, I don't hate others. I'm not speaking evil against someone. I'm not grumbling against someone, but maybe not as the norm. Praise the Lord for his work of grace in us that, that helps us to get it right. But just know, as James said, the, the tongue is a world of iniquity. It's a fire, and, it, and, it's, and it's ignited by the flames of hell, he says. Well, that sounds harsh until we get to this text and we realize, wait a minute. If, if I don't want the judge at the door to, to assault me with all of my failures and remind me of them, then I can't do that to others. And so we're warned and we're admonished uh, against this kind of negative behavior. Again, as brothers in Christ, as spouses, as parents, we have to speak truth and we do have to identify sin and we have to help them see what God says about it. Um, but it can't be in this spirit um, of, of the grudge, of the grumbling, of the latching onto it and not letting it go. You don't want to do that, he says, so that you may not taste that same treatment. We'll leave that to the judge who is standing at the door and will make all these things right. In a positive way, he'll perfect his people and make us holy. And in the negative way, where he deals with all the evildoers and sets everything right. So those are most of the negative instructions that come to us uh, regarding our behavior. Curb these things. Put away these things. Don't do these things. Stop doing these things. Why? Because of this umbrella principle that John 13 gave us when Jesus said, this is my commandment, the new commandment. 
that you love one another. He repeated it a couple chapters later, John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And a few verses later, these things I command you that you love one another. Well, I want to look at the first of our positive one another's, and it's there in John 13, but it's actually before he gives that command. So in John 13, Jesus and his disciples have arrived in the upper room. Nobody washes feet. They all come into the room and find their place. And so the text says Jesus, seeing that nobody had washed feet, he got up from dinner, kind of lays aside his teacher robe and puts a towel, kind of ties it around to get down the business, and he goes and washes the disciples' feet. Well, we come to verse 14, and Jesus says this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So we have an interpretive question here. Should we wash each other's feet? Based on verse 14, you ought also to wash one another's feet. Have you ever been in a church that did foot washing, anybody? Anybody ever seen it done at a wedding, maybe? Or uh, I know there's some Baptist church, probably like Primitive Baptist or Free Will Baptist, that would do foot washing often after like the Lord's Supper. Um, it's, it's, it is an interpretive question, because what do we do with a command that makes it seem like that's exactly what we should do, is wash one another's feet. Verse 15 seems like it could go either way. Some argue that Jesus says, I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. This is just an example of serving others. Others say, no, he gave us an example, and we should do just as he did. So verse 15 alone doesn't seem to answer whether he's saying, Foot washing is exactly what you should do to each other, or foot washing is an example of what you should do to each other, as in serving and meeting their needs. So we have to keep looking, and first in this very context, to see if there's anything else that helps us interpret this. Well, I think when we see that Jesus says, do this just as I have done to you, We have to ask the question, what is it that Jesus is pointing back to? What is the example he's given us? What is the action Jesus says to imitate? And I think the key is found earlier in this physical foot washing story when Jesus uses foot washing, the physical act of foot washing, as a picture of a spiritual reality. So look back. Verse 5, he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus is using physical foot washing to communicate a much greater reality. The reality of what he is doing to wash them from sin. And afterward, give it a few hours, uh, 24 hours down the road, 48 hours, Sunday morning, they'll begin to get an understanding of what actually has unfolded before them. And Jesus' actions there at the upper room and washing their feet will find its place as a picture of a greater act of serving, to do what is necessary to meet the need. Uh, so Jesus immediately, at the, his first words in this foot-washing ordeal is saying there's something bigger going on here. It's not just foot washing. Verse 8 is is similar. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Well, wait a minute. If uh, having clean physical feet has nothing really to do with whether you belong to Christ in a share, in a fellowship with him. Clean feet is not the determination for eternal life. Having a share with Christ is far more significant than that. It has to do with this being washed from sin, and now sinners washed clean can be made right with the holy God. So Jesus is is doing a physical thing, but he is communicating a spiritual truth. And it's again in verses 9 to 11. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Again, he's not talking about dirty feet. He's talking about hearts of Most of the men around the table, while immature in their faith, and he'd rebuke them often for that, were putting faith in this promised one of God, while one at the table was not, and had always been in this for himself, and now was fed up with it and was going to betray Jesus. Not everyone was clean, and so he wasn't saying, I haven't gotten to everyone's feet. He's saying, there are some here who have no share. They're not washed from their sin. So Jesus, all through this account, has been doing a physical act to speak of a spiritual reality. And now he simply says to his disciples, see what I've done for you. I've done whatever the need was, whatever it had to be done to serve others, I've done. And he's going to go and do that again at the cross But he's saying, as I've done to you, this example, you go and do likewise. And it wasn't have an antenna up and always be the first one to volunteer to wash feet. It was to have an antenna up to any need and be the first one to meet that need. And just keep finding needs to meet because the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. Always looking to meet needs. And that's pitted against the devil's constant lie. Do you really want to be a doormat? Are you going to let him walk all over you? Are you going to 
Well, I'm sure Jesus felt pretty much like the doormat and could have easily said, am I really going to let the creatures I've created walk all over me? We just read through Mark in the gospel account and the family reading. When they're spitting and punching them and saying, who hit you? I think about that time Jesus could have said, am I really going to let them walk all over me and treat me like this? You see, Jesus was communicating to his disciples, when I tell you to love one another, I'm not saying it's going to be easy or glamorous or rewarded in this life with thankful people. It may be that you wash Judas's feet this week and he walks out the door and does harm to you. And you may feel that way at times about your spouse or your kids or whatever, people that don't treat you right, even though you feel like I'm, I'm loving them and that's okay. Just keep doing it. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples when you have love for one another. And Jesus shows us how to love imperfect disciples who were bickering that very night about who's the greatest. It's no wonder nobody was going to wash feet. They were all going to show who was great. Jesus said, no, I'll show you who's great. Knowing that he was God, John 13 says, Knowing that he was about to go to the cross, he laid aside his garment and he, and he proved his greatness by serving. So I don't think we need to wash one another's feet, though we certainly could do that. Uh, I think the admonition is do whatever needs to be done to serve that person in love. So that first umbrella principle, love one another, is significant and it comes to us in a significant story that helps us understand true love. We'll dive into the rest of these one another's in the weeks to come. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it convicts us of our selfishness and our sin. May we hear these admonitions to refrain from or to put away. May we hear the admonitions to put on and to pursue. Would you help us to see that The great measure of putting off and putting on is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so as we see him and treasure him, uh, would you make us more like him? And may that transformation, may our sanctification be evident to those around us by the way that we love. Help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.